Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. And welcome to Nature Folk with Selena Fox, brought to us every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Pagans Tonight Radio Networks. Nature Folk with Selena Fox is a production of Circle Sanctuary's radio ministry programs. Tonight's program is a rebroadcast of Circle Craft Studies with Selena Fox, where Selena led a discussion exploring ways to understand dream symbols, characters, places, themes, and messages. Interpreting Dreams. And after Nature Folk, please stay tuned for the other Circle Radio ministry program, Circle Talk, where Circle Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing will welcome guests Dezirga for a discussion of what he will be presenting at this year's Pagan Spirit Gathering. Welcome to Circle Craft Study with Selena Fox. This is Selena Fox, and this week we're going to continue with our work with dream life. Tonight we're going to be exploring ways for interpreting dreams. Join with me now in the next few moments as we honor our dream life. Dream life, you are within us. You are part of our larger life journey. Help us connect with you, work with you, understand you, celebrate you, so mote it be. Interpreting dreams, where to begin? Well, we begin by looking at two basic approaches to interpreting a dream. The first is to work with the dream as a whole to connect with it as if it were a work of art, a concert, um, a theater performance, a novel. We look at it as a whole entity and connect with it in this holistic way as a snapshot of your own inner spaces. The other way of working with dreams to understand them is what you might call the decoding approach. It is to look at each of the different dimensions of a dream. Each of the characters the scenes, the settings, colors, lighting, dynamics of interaction, mood, and the overall narrative, looking at individual parts 
of that narrative. When I do dream work, I like working with both approaches. I begin with the overall approach, then do some decoding work with some of the elements within the dream, and then finish my interpretation work by working with the dream as a whole once again. A dream is more than the sum of its parts. It's a dynamic flash of understanding of your own interiors. And working with the dream as a whole to get a sense of what it has come to tell us, one of the best ways to do this is to work with a dream journal and to write down as much as you can possibly remember about the dream. If possible, write the dream in the present tense. Call it to mind as if it is happening. For by doing so, you can better connect with the dynamics that are flowing through the dream and ultimately its message or messages for you. Give the dream a title. Imagine that it is a movie or a novel or a play. Give it a short, catchy title. In doing so, it gives you the opportunity to work with that dream as a whole entity and it can help you remember the dream as you reflect back on it later. Another reason to give the dream a title is it's a way of distilling the essence of the dream and in a way doing a kind of interpretation on it. Another way of working with the dream as a whole entity is to do a meditation, reviewing the whole dream, and then letting that trigger in you one phrase or a sentence or two of guidance. It doesn't necessarily have to be what the dream means per se, but it's a way of having that dream activate your own inner guidance and in a way that is bringing forth a dream understanding. Another technique for working with the dream as a whole is to imagine that the dream is a being and have a conversation with the dream. It really helps if you've given it a title that helps by naming it, it starts giving it that form. And you can ask your dream, what does it have to tell you? Reflect on that and then begin writing, stream of consciousness, writing whatever comes to you. 
and let the dream speak through you as you write. Now, you may not be getting answers about why particular objects and creatures and humans may be appearing in your dream, but you are using that dream to explore your consciousness and to have it be a messenger of messages that's important for you to focus on. Another way to understand a dream in its entirety is to have a dream partner and to exchange dream narratives with each other, listening to the whole narrative, pausing, reflecting, and then having the partner use a specific form of conversational structure to give you feedback. And that conversational structure would be, if this dream was one that I had, this is a possible message that there would be for me. In doing so, you are getting feedback from a friend, a loved one, but rather than that person presuming to say, this is what your dream means, that person helps structure a conversation in which they take on the dream themselves and give some reflection on what that possibly could be. Now, we've talked about some techniques for looking at the dream as a whole and getting meaning and understanding from it. Now, let's take a look at the decoding approach. First of all, there are dream dictionaries. There are websites with symbol decoding meanings. And while I appreciate the interest that some have in working with symbols and universal meanings, the best dream dictionary is one that you create yourself. Yes, a symbol can have some universal meaning, but chances are what is a more important meaning for you and more relevant to understanding a dream is what that particular symbol has already connected with it um, in your own consciousness. I use a three-prong approach for going deep into understanding a particular symbol. And these have come from my years of dream study as well as my exploration of different schools of psychology. The first method for understanding a symbol would be to take that symbol and then do a chaining approach. Focus on the symbol and then see what triggers in your mind when you do. Then let that image or symbol or word be your focus and let that trigger another word. And to give yourself 
at least a minute or two to do this. And as you do this exercise, write them down. Set a timer so that you can really focus on the process rather than keeping time. Then at the end of the one or two or three minutes, whatever you have selected, just stop and then take a look at the last thing that surfaced in this chaining approach and look at the first symbol that you are working with. Chances are you're going to find some kind of connection. By going deep into your own psyche, your imagination, your memories with a symbol, you can find things that are connected with it that can help you understand its meaning. That particular technique, my version of it, has its origins in Freudian psychology, a method that Freud used called free association, where his clients would be laying down on a couch and letting one image or scenario trigger another, trigger another. So that particular methodology actually has its roots in psychoanalysis. But the part that I've added with this is to actually do a timing for yourself and to bring that chain full circle and to take the last part that is surfaced and connect it with the first. There's another method for simple interpretation, and this is a kind of um, network casting. You begin with a symbol and see what it triggers. You go back to the symbol and you see what it triggers. You begin again with the symbol and see what it triggers, and you keep referencing the original symbol. So what you're basically doing is kind of a starburst. You're continuing to work with the center. Now this has its roots in a field of psychology as well, in Jungian psychology. And Jung really looked at symbols and working with them in this way as a way of really developing a fuller appreciation of what a symbol might be. He called the method amplification. So my networking method has a lot in common. The difference is that once you, here again, you set a time limit for this so that you can really focus on the referencing process. And once you are done, then what you do is look at the sequence in which the associations have come up and see what patterns you find with that, what themes happen amongst the different words and phrases, imagery that have popped up as you've done work on a symbol. A third way of working with a symbol and deciphering its meaning can be done on its own, or what I often do when I do dream workshops, face-to-face -face settings, is that we'll start with the chaining technique, go to the networking technique, and then 
working with the same symbol, we do this method, which is a resonance technique. Essentially, what you're going to be doing with this technique is to take the symbol and let your whole attention focus on that symbol and let it be a meditation, the symbol. You immerse yourself in this form of symbol decoding. You become one with the symbol. You let it totally occupy your mind. And then after you've done that for one or two minutes, also setting a timer, you then allow yourself to write. You let the symbol and your process of identifying with it trigger understanding some deep within yourself. And you write and write and write and write until you feel you are complete. And here it, again, it's stream of consciousness, free-flowing. What I like to do when I do my face-to-face workshops is to have each of the people in the workshop all take a look at all three methods and find the one that really seemed to work best for them in that particular instance. I think working with all three can be a very wonderful way of understanding a symbol. Now, if you're trying to understand a dream, it took several minutes just even to describe these three methods of symbol decoding. Well, you may not have the lifestyle and the schedule to really allow yourself to do that for every single dimension of your dream. So that particular um, trio of techniques I recommend for people that have had a symbol or a situation or some other element of the dream that one really wants to get a more in-depth understanding for rather than trying to have that happen for every single um, dynamic of the dream. Some other ways of working with the decoding method is to consider your dream as a movie or as a theatrical production. And with this approach, you look at the characters. What's the cast of characters? You make a list of the characters. What do each of those characters remind you of? Um, are there other are there people you know in your day to day life or from some fictional accounts that you've encountered? So get a get your cast of characters and whatever associations come to your mind, what each of those characters remind you of. Then you take a look at the setting. What kind of setting or settings does the dream happen in? Are you inside? Are you outside? And then look at some things connected with the setting. How bright is the setting? What's the lighting? What's the mood? What's the atmosphere of your scene and of your set? Is there 
a lot going on? Or is it pretty simple in terms of its um, depiction? How complicated is it? And as you really look at what I call dreamscapes, the settings where dreams take part, that can provide you some important clues, getting a sense of the location of where dream actions are happening can bring forth some understandings of some scenarios that might be going on in day-to-day life. If you are in a place that's familiar, well, chances are you're going to be dealing with something um, meaning-wise that you are immersed in. If it is a whole different place, you've never been there before, that could be a signal that you're trying to solve some problems and work on some new solutions. Another thing to look for in the decoding aspect of dream interpretation has to do with the action. Not only what type of actions are happening during the course of the dream, but look at where you're at in relationship to the action. Are you the main character and doing most of the action or all of the action? Or are you an observer and someone else is doing the action primarily or totally? Are you being acted upon or are you acting? How much power do you have in the dream? Does the activity of the dream trigger some mood, some emotions within you? Does the activity in the dream remind you of some things happening in your day-to-day life? And you can continue with the theatrical production dynamic by looking at overall themes that seem to play out. Are you being chased or are you chasing? Are you discovering something or are you being discovered? How free are you in the dream? Is the dream about freedom and constriction? Is the dream about loss or gain? Looking at one or more themes during the course of a dream can give you important understandings about what the dream has come to tell you. Now, after you've looked at characters and you've looked at the set and you've looked at action and you've looked at theme, in this decoding method, it's time to take all of that material and to see what patterns and connections that you have amongst those different ingredients and looking at your day-to-day life. What things remind you of scenarios in your day-to-day life? 
Now, why I mention day-to-day life, most of the dreams that we have are ways of processing what has happened with us in the day or in the previous day or in some cases um, for several days before having the dream. Most dreams have some message for us in our day-to-day life, and they draw material that we've encountered in day-to-day life to have those messages. Sometimes a dream will be a fulfillment for a wish that we might have. Sometimes a dream may be us trying to figure out a solution to a problem. Sometimes a dream helps us get some insights on something we might have had flash through our mind during the day, but we didn't pay much attention to it. When a dream comes back multiple times, you have what is known as recurring dream. It is especially important to do dream work on your own with a dream partner or with a therapist, counselor, or dream specialist to help you get the message. When a dream repeats, there is something within your psyche that is attempting to shift into a new mode and to help you shift your awareness in some way. And therefore, recurring dreams are clearly calls for our attention. And those can be really important to work with because often they have meanings that not only can help us with healing and wellness for ourselves, but can provide renewal and inspiration for the future. Now, we've talked about working with the dream as a whole. We've talked about working with some component parts. How do we mesh all of this together and come up with a strategy to do dream interpretation work as part of day-to-day life? I think it is very helpful to have a dream journal of some kind. I prefer to have one that I actually write out longhand so I do not have to go to another part of the house and turn on the computer and wait for everything to boot up. Um, It is more immediate and it's something that I can keep right next to my bed or at a place that I can go to in the night if I don't want to um, disturb my partner. And then I have an actual record of it. Having a dream journal and having some techniques for recording the dream and also doing a process with the dream I think is really important. Remembering the dream is obviously key because then you have it set down as you journal and then you can come back to that dream later on and reflect on it and get deeper understandings. 
When I write a dream down, I give it a title, I write the narrative, I read back over the dream and see what other things come to mind about the dream, details that I may not have written down the first time. And once I've done that, putting the narrative down, I shift into what I call process. And process is my way of doing interpretation work. I often will do some free-form writing, impressions as I'm working with the dream. Sometimes I'll identify particular characters or symbols and write some impressions down about that. And I do actually a combination of working with the dream as a whole as well as some of its common elements. But the third part to me is the most important part of the whole dream work process. And that is distilling a message for day-to-day life. So after I've written down the narrative and given the dream a title, read it over, filled in any additional details, then done a process of um, all-as-one interpretation and some component parts interpretation, then the third part is message for the day. And I just sit, reflect, and let a message come and write it down. And then I reflect on how I might be able to put that message into action within my day-to-day life. I found by having that three-part approach of getting dream content and narrative down, doing interpretation and process around that, and then distilling a dream message and putting it into action, that threefold approach to dream work, that that not only helps me understand the dream as the day goes on, because I may get insights that happen as a result of doing this, but it also helps me develop my dream life because I'm paying attention to my dreams, I'm making a space in my life for working with dreams, and I'm going full circle by taking dream messages in my waking life and putting them into action. What I'd like to do now is give our call-in number and invite listeners live to call in to share your comments about some of the things I've been sharing Or if you have particular techniques that you use for interpreting dreams, I invite you to share those. Or if you have a dream that you might want some input on in terms of interpretation, I welcome you for that as well. The number to call is 347-308-8222. That's 347-308-8222. Now I welcome my assistants in CircleCraft study, David and Jeanette Ewing, into the conversation. Um, Get your comments yourself, and if there's been 
some input through live chat, I'd certainly be open to hearing about that. Hello, it's David here. Hi, David. Hi, and Jeanette and various cats that we have in the house tonight. <laughs> Hi, Jeanette. Hi there. Um, we have one person who is uh, has briefly discussed Dreams. There's one dream that was extremely vivid for her, and in the dream, she's in medieval Europe, and she's a knight, and uh, the king has died, and several, I, I don't know if in the dream she uh, perceives herself as male or female. Um, yeah. Um, or it's a person is male or female. I'm not sure. A knight, but but a medieval yeah Europe fighting in a battle. Um, yeah, and the king, uh, the castle was in ruins. The king was dead. Just a few of her of her brothers were left. Um, kind of interesting. Yeah, and you know yeah. when we go <laughs> through yeah. the time yeah. period because that's another dimension of the theatrical lens for looking at dreams. Yeah, what what's the period setting? What's the costuming like? Right? What's the power relationship between the uh, various characters? Sometimes dreams that are set in another era help us get some new perspectives on some dynamics that might be happening in our day-to-day life. We may be able to see more clearly some conflicts, some solutions, some possibilities by having them in a totally different place and time. So that's one possible um, reason for having something set back in time. Sometimes a dream may take content from another era that could be considered ancestral some part of one's psyche that existed back in that time period. Or for those who work with reincarnation as part of their worldview, it could be a reflection of a past life. And one of the great things I um, have found about dreams over time is that you can have a past life memory dream and it can give you some insight into that other dimension of yourself in another reality. But at the same time, you can also get some very specific information about some dynamics happening in day-to-day life. A dream does not have to have just one meaning that like other types of works of art you can connect with it on many different levels that's really interesting because uh this person uh wild silver wolf is his name and he was saying that in the dream that he actually before you even brought up the possibility of of it being a reincarnation issue that he felt that it might have been a reincarnation type, a past life type of event because it seems so real. And that in the dream, um, he died, and then right after that he woke up. So, yeah, yeah. 
And sometimes we have, if, let's say it is a reincarnational dream, sometimes we have those reincarnational dreams, especially if there's a death involved in it, that there may be some dynamic that was playing itself out in that life that is reasserting it in the present life, and by working with it in the present life through the input of the dream life, that one can actually achieve peace and resolution, can actually evolve from what's been before. Now, one of the things that I have found can be really helpful when one is um, presented with a dream that is very, very vivid and may be hearkening to a deeper dimension of self, such as a past life or an ancestor coming and speaking or an encounter with some other sacred one, a goddess, a god, uh, a um, animal spirit, a plant spirit, or whatever, that when you have a dream that's very, very vivid, it's really important to give give it some space and time to reveal its message. It may not come all at once, and there are dreams that I have had in this life that I've done dream work on, but I've gone back to years later because they were dreams coming from a much deeper place, more from the core of my psyche, which connects with all that is. And when you have what uh, many dream workers will call a great dream, it's important to honor it and to spend some time with it to share the story with trusted others, to do some meditation work on it, to do some journaling on it. And there are other ways of coming to understand a dream. I had a dream of a place that I have come to believe was a place I lived in some other time and reality. A place called Asdalen. It's now a state park. It's a protected area. It's a place of step pyramid mounds. I had been in Wisconsin only a few months, and I had had this very vivid dream. And I saw a ritual. I saw these mounds. And I... Um, had done a sufficient dream work by that point. I was in my early 20s that as I was coming out of the dream, I asked myself while I was still dreaming, where is this, and got a place, and it showed a specific place where this was. Well, when I get something that specific, the scientists that test and retest and um, analyzes things, it's going to check it out. And I have a mystical side, and I have this very analytical, um, skeptical side as well, and I endeavored to balance all of that. And, and as a result of working with that dream, I not only came 
to actually go visit that site, find out about the site. But um, years later, I'm continuing to visit that site in actuality and am a lifetime member now of a foundation set up to preserve the site. There's a lot of mysteries still not known, and I talked with the main archaeologist that has written about this site and gotten to know him and over time revealed some of the things I came to know about that site through a dream. Now, did I actually dream something that was accurate historically? I don't know, but I do think as we explore history and cultures and the past, dreams can be a way of unlocking mysteries, not only within ourselves, but for the larger culture of which we're part. That's interesting. Um, that's Wow, that's really kind of a powerful <laughs> thing to kind of sit and think about. Um, that you know you could dream of of some place that you know that vividly that you know might have a connection to a past life or something going on there somehow the place was reaching out to you in your dreams and just you know made a connection to you that's I mean, it's kind of because when you're in a dream when you're dreaming when you're asleep and you're dreaming your mind is kind of open a little mm-hmm. more open that kind of contact and stuff too um now, from, you, here's a question. Do you think that that happened, it was a sort of a spontaneous thing that just sort of happened to happen? Or do you think that because of the, the type of work that you routinely do with working with your own dreams, that you were able, that this type of dream was able to, I guess, manifest? I think part of, I think, kind of yes to all of that. I think because I had been working, doing dream work since I was a very young child, paying attention to my dreams, sketching things out, writing them down. I've been keeping dream journals of one sort or the other for many, many years. I don't write down every single dream at this point in my life, but um, as I have a dream, I pay attention to every one. And when because um, when I'm in the middle of the night and I have a dream, then I have the big question, okay, do I get up and go to my journal and write it down and uh, possibly disrupt my sleep, or do I get the messages out of it and do kind of a quick dream working and then go back to sleep? So that's why I don't always write them all down <laughs> to preserve sleep, because the better you get at your dream work, the more dreams you remember, right? So that can be really good. But I think part of um, what happened was that I – was at a point in my life where I was really opening up. I had relocated to Wisconsin. This place was in Wisconsin, not that far from where I was living, you know, within an hour, hour and a half drive or so. And I was doing spiritual work at that time that was really stimulating um, a wisdom from within coming forth. So I, there were a combination of things, I think, that led me to have that particular dream. Every so often, I will have what I would call a great dream. And as I come out of that dream, I definitely feel transformed. And uh, next week, 
uh, we'll be doing the third part in this series, the transforming dreams, and really looking at working with dreams in a different way, going back into a dream to change it. Right. Before going to sleep, calling on a particular dream to actually have communication with the dream, um, being able to do rituals and within rituals going into a dream place where one has um, been or if one has encountered some spiritual guide in a dream, being able to incorporate that in spiritual life through ritual and meditation. Transforming dreams, to me, ultimately is creating a more advanced form of dream life. You've remembered dreams, you've worked with dreams, you've come to understand dreams. Well, you go to this next step, which is to recognize that you can work with the language of dreams. You can work, be a co-creator in a waking state of dream-like states. And once you start developing some skills in that, then you will most likely find that all aspects of your dream life tend to get better. You will remember more. You'll understand more because you're actually in active relationship with deeper parts of your consciousness. Well, here's another question for you, Selena. Yeah. Um, Lawrence was asking about um, what you would make of a dream where your dream self does things that you in your waking life would never do, like be violent when you're not a violent person or you know, mm-hmm. do you know, exhibit behavior, your dream self exhibits behavior that would not normally be something, you know, is not normally your normal behavior. There is a psychological principle called repression. And as part of us growing into ideally self-actualized human beings where we are connecting with the wisdom self within us and we're uh, becoming more and more aware of what's around us and others' needs and our own needs and that type of thing. As we're maturing as individuals, there may be things that happen during the course of a day in which we know from our mature self that it's best to not blurt out in anger or to be violent what happens to that type of material and dynamics? In our dream life, if we have made a choice to um, really let loose on something or someone, that could be a safety valve for us, that sometimes we'll do things in our dream as a way of releasing psychological pressure. Um, If one continues to have a lot of violence in dreams, though, then it's good to do some dream work with a dream professional. A dream work professional could be a therapist, a counselor, um, 
a dream worker that specializes in that because there may be something within the psyche that's unsettled that really needs attending to. One of the things that can happen in dreams is that things that we'll never be able to do in our life due to some circumstance we may not just be, you know, physically able. You know, I've I've passed menopause, so I am at least at this point not going to have any children in my womb and giving birth. But if I have a dream and I'm giving birth in that dream, that can be a very powerful symbol to me of generativity, of of a kind of fertility and of a kind of a different kind of birth rather than a human birth and in some ways having an actual physical birth in a dream if one hasn't had children in in a waking life can be a kind of compensation so there's no one reason why um we get some what you would call much different or contrasting behaviors in dreams. Um, There are a number of psychological principles that might be coming to play. Well, how do you figure that out? Well, part of it is if you were doing work with being very violent in the dream, some work to do is um, to invite the dream self to help you get some understanding about what kind of stress um you may need to do some stress release on in addition to dream work you know or um if there's something that has been really irritating you or bugging you and it comes out in a really violent way um then there may be some other outlets to have a better understanding about that and to shift some dynamics in waking life so that's a good question and i you know there we are complex beings and we have many different facets and dreams can play so many different roles they can be educational we can actually learn things in our dreams and sometimes um the act of doing dream interpretation is a kind of learning for ourselves dreams can help fulfill wishes, helping us to experience some dynamics that maybe help balance hard things going on in day-to-day life. Uh, Some people who have done research on prisoners of war and looked at some dreams um, that people have had, you know, certainly some ways that people have survived a prisoner of war experience is by having a dream life in which they're free and keeping hope alive that they will be free. And that's just, you know, one example of, of many different kinds of things that can happen through dreams. Sometimes dreams come to us with a solution to something we've been working on in day-to-day life, even without us doing an incubation, which is a kind of dream magic in which you, um, before going to bed, you 
program yourself to have a dream to bring about a message or a solution to a particular problem. The very act of being immersed in problem solving over the course of several hours, several days, several weeks or longer, you have the mental energy being so focused on that that when you go into the dream state, sometimes things get freed up and come together and there have been Nobel Prizes that had been won from discoveries that have had their roots in dreams. Um, something I'd like to um, end with before we close is that dream psychology has really come a long way since the 1950s in which um, brain waves were starting to be associated with um, different states of sleep. And there was something known as rapid eye movement that was discovered in some experiments in the 1950s with people who were sleeping. And they found that they woke somebody up and when they're in a state with their eyes moving rapidly back and forth, chances are they remembered a dream. Well, some of the um, progress that's been happening in more recent years is that there's now an understanding that people can dream not only in what's known as REM sleep, but in non-REM sleep. And I am very thankful for um, the research continuing in this um, aspect of our life's journey that most of us have going on every night. I want to thank everyone who has listened live tonight and those who are going to be listening later. I am wishing you all good dreams and good dream journeys in understanding and working with your dream life. Dreams, we celebrate you, we honor you, continue to be part of our valued dynamics of living. So mote it be. And now as we move into closing our show, I want to give thanks to David and Jeanette. I want to give thanks to the Pagans Tonight Radio Network and invite everyone who is interested in doing some more dream work to tune in next week for Transforming Dreams. And if you have questions or things that you'd like to share about dreams, I invite you to connect with me by email, selena at org, or on Facebook, Selena Fox Updates. That's my main page. You can go there. You can um, post a comment and give me some feedback about our show tonight or if you have some other um, questions or things about dreams you'd like some input on, then do some posts there. 
I do some dream work, dream therapy, dream interpretation is part of my telephone consultation practice. And should any of you listening be interested in doing one-on-one dream work with me, you can go to my website, www.selenafox.com, and you can find out about scheduling an appointment and and payment and that type of thing. It's part of my income stream, so I have been doing this by telephone as a service, not only to the greater pagan community, but to people of many different paths who wish to know more about dreams or some other aspects of spiritual life. One spirit in the dark, like a candle wavers. Many spirits joined as one, burn with the power of the blazing sun. There is strength in community.
Welcome to Circle Talk Radio, a production of Circle Sanctuary's radio ministry program. Join us here every Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern following the Nature Folk Program with Reverend Selena Fox as we discuss various topics of interest to the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Sanctuary Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing and Circle Minister Deborah Rose. And before we begin, we'd like to thank the Witches School International and the Pagan Senate Radio Network for allowing us this opportunity to reach the community. For more information about Witches School, please visit them on the web at www.witchschool.com. And for more information about Circle Sanctuary, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org. Well, good evening, and welcome to another edition of Circle Talk Radio. Uh, this is David Ewing, and Jeanette will be joining us shortly. And uh, so tonight, this is a Tuesday in May, I don't know about most of the country, here on the East Coast, we've been wet, and then wet, and then some more rain just to add in for the variety of things. Um, been a very wet few weeks for us, and I think the majority, a good chunk of the East Coast. So, we're going to... Think of warmer, drier times and put our minds ahead to next month with the summer solstice and the pagan spirit gathering taking place in Illinois at Tall Tree. I always get it wrong. Tall Tree Lake in southern Illinois. And PSG is Circle Sanctuary's big gathering. It's one of the largest and oldest. Um, gatherings of pagans in the country and it's been around for this is like 30 some odd years so um, about a thousand-ish people usually show up it's an eight-day camping event yes it starts June 17th and goes on for Sunday through Sunday so there's lots of things to do lots of entertainment a lot of musicians we've talked to quite a few of them here on Circle Talk the past few weeks a lot of presenters, and we've talked to a few of them so far, and we still have a few to talk to, and, and we have a guest tonight who's one of those presenters, and there's rituals every day of some sort. There are um, uh, a variety of activities going on here, so I'm trying to get to the PSG page on Circle's website. Um, a lot of workshops, a lot of rituals, a lot of things to do, a lot of stuff going on. There's a minister's uh, training program, minister's intensive that goes on all week where various circle ministers present different workshops and about different topics. And there are, uh, Selena Fox usually does, she has her intensive in the evenings, uh, usually has a topic to cover, and she'll spend each night speaking about a specific t- portion of that topic. Um, and let's see what else is going on at PSG this year. We've got home. Yeah, so PSG. Here it is. Registration is still open. Um, June 17th to 24th at Tall Tree Lake in Southern Illinois. The theme this year is Soul Shine. So your soul, let the soul shine out. Um, we're going to have, there's merchants, lots of merchants, lots of stuff to do. So bring your spending money. Uh, good time for some gift purchases. Think ahead for Yule. Um, musicians, presenters, workshops, Leadership Institute, Ministers Intensive is Selena's program. Um, rituals, there's a ritual like basically every day, there's multiple rituals, our first time we attended I think like 
forget what it was like eight or rituals or something like that. Eight rituals or something, seven or eight. Um, a lot. Um, so we've got one of those presenters on with us tonight, and this is Gus uh, Dezerga. I think I said that right. Um, probably not. So he's going to be joining us. He's a writer. He does. A, he has a, a blog that he writes. He does some teaching. He's got some books and some workshops that he does. And we're going to hear from him here in just a second. Here, so let's bring Gus on. Hello, Gus. Hello. How are you, David? Good. And you said good. Good. How are you? You said my last name right. Okay. Okay. Well, although in Taos we're having a drought. Well, so I you wish can some ship- of the, I, some, I wish some of the rain coming your way would come our way. <laughs> um, it seems to be like that. When, when the West Coast is getting a lot of rain, we're droughting over here, and vice versa. Um, we had, I think, inches. There were days that we had inches of rain per day, kind of thing. Um, one of the areas up here, northern in Maryland, in Frederick, Maryland, north of D.C. Here, I think they had like seven inches of rain in like two or three hours. Um, big storm came through, so um, yeah. But we we've been out to New Mexico. Um, Jeanette's on the phone here too. Hello. Hi there. Hi there. So. We went out to New Mexico. When was that? In 2000? 2004. Four, yeah. Mm-hmm. Went out to Albuquerque and, and did the trip around the Four Corners area. That's beautiful yeah. country up there. It is. And we camped. Yeah, and you'd mentioned last week that you went to Canyon Duchesne, right? Right. I had the opportunity, some California friends uh, were going to be visiting there and do a uh, tour into the interior of the canyon, the places that most people never go. And uh, so Richard called and said, do you want to come? And I thought, you know, it beats, uh, it's a nice break from writing and gardening in Taos. And so... It's a beautiful drive from Taos to Canyon de Chez, and the place is extraordinary. Um, yeah, we did that. more to say. Yeah. Um, and for those who have never gone to that part of the world, or that part of the United States, Canyon de Chez is part of the National Park Service, sort of. The the part of the canyon that is at the top is technically part of the National Park Service. But within the canyon, it is reservation land. And only certain, only people who are Navajo are allowed to go in there or let others go in there. It's a tricky sort of a thing. Right. So you have to my be able to go with somebody to go in. My understanding is even a little more complex than that, that the whole thing is part of the Navajo uh, reservation. But yeah. um, access, the, the land, uh, while the land is, is Navajo owned and controlled, the archaeological sites are what the National Park Service basically uh, controls. And so you have a sort of a joint uh, management 
And one of the, I thought, very extraordinary things about it is the only guides you can get into the canyon are Navajo. Uh, Correct. Preferably ones who uh, were raised there as kids. And the one we had, a fellow named Oscar, was in many ways a very traditional Navajo. He called himself a medicine man. Um, He had conducted some of the ceremonies within their tradition. And as he relaxed around us, because we were all pagans, um, he was more and more open about his views um, spiritually, culturally, and otherwise. So we had the opportunity to, to go with a very traditional Navajo uh, who'd been raised there, still owned, as he and his family still owned land there, which had uh, ruins and petroglyphs. And he told the story of uh, some archaeologists wanted to uh, excavate a ruin on, on the land near where the family lived. And his, I think it was his grandmother said, well, if I wanted to dig in your backyard, would you let me? And he said, no. He said, well, she said, well, the same is true for me. <laughs> so there are unexcavated ruins back there as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so kind of cool, though, you know. It is. And what a great experience for you, in particular, as someone who's pagan, who was able to have that kind of dialogue with somebody who is a medicine man or, you know, a, a, a spiritual leader of some sort among his own people. And for people who aren't quite aware, you, uh, there are people, there are Navajos that still live deep within the canyons themselves. And if you were to go and look on a map and, and look and see how, you know, how the, the canyons are laid out, it kind of spreads out like the branches of a tree and it gets more narrow the farther east you go into the canyon, and mm-hmm. north, I suppose, into the canyon, and there are people who still live there. And it's important to keep in mind that um, you don't have, if you have electricity, it is from a generator. There is no Wi-Fi. There are no modern or very few in the way of any sort of modern conveniences. So people live, if you're living back there, then you're living the way your ancestors live. Right. Much more so, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. In Taos, the Tiwa Pueblo is very similar, although most Tiwa, and I imagine it's also true for the Navajo that spend especially their summers in the canyon, uh, that they have other other homes either in Taos or um, above the canyon on the reservation somewhere. Right. I only know for sure that that's true for the Tiwa, but I would imagine that host like their television too. <laughs> oh yeah. In fact, he'd write about uh, how the kids were always, uh, you know, wanting to have technology and the television and the rest of that, rather than than traditional uh, practices. So the younger generation is always a problem for every culture, I imagine. <laughs> right. Now, oh, probably, yeah, probably. 
Yeah, there's always. And I think, and I'm looking at all your your bio stuff that's on the on Circle's website. So, um, under the heading of Pagan Spirit Gathering, and then if you click on the drop down menu, you can see all of the presenters that are going to be there this year's gathering and Gus is listed and all of his bio stuff. And you're one of the few people who you are a third degree elder in Gardnerian Wicca. And we don't get too many Gardnerians these days. So I think that'll be an interesting thing for people coming to PSG to, uh, to talk with you, you know, about as much as, you know, I know it's, as a tradition, there's many things you, you can't talk about, but just as, as a third-degree elder. Yeah. There's a whole lot more I can talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's all this other stuff. I know, because I'm looking through all the lists. And um, I'm looking at, let's see, it looks like, I, um, is this correct? The first book that you wrote is was Persuasion, Power, and Polity, A Theory of Democratic Self-Organization. So that was your yes. the first book that, that you my, wrote. That was okay. my Ph.D. dissertation at Berkeley, plus oh, a lot gotcha. of, of subsequent work. So it okay. has, um, at the time that I wrote most of it, uh, including the dissertation, I was not involved in any way uh, with pagan uh, religion and spirituality. And then right after finishing the dissertation, literally within a month, um, because I paid for it as an artist, I joked I was the starving academic who did art for a living. And I met a fellow who was a reg- became a regular customer and at one point he said he was involved with magic, and I said, "Where do you perform?" And he said, "I'm not that kind of, you know, not that kind of magic." And he was a good customer, so I didn't say what I really thought at the time. But after I finished the PhD and thought I would become a normal college professor, uh, I was selling my stuff, and he came by, and I dared him to show me magic because I wanted to see how he'd weasel out, and he did. And my whole worldview changed one e- one night on the Berkeley campus, and the rest is history. So, what was and it that, that he? To... What was it that he showed you? Well, there or were a number of things, that he did? but the the most impressive was there was a there's a place uh, on the campus that looks. I'd been there ten years, didn't know it existed, even though it was in the middle of the campus, because. You can only get to it from two very uh, obscure entrances. It's surrounded by four buildings, and none of whom open directly out to it. And it looks sort of like a Cecil B. DeMille set of an old pagan ritual site, minus statues. Uh, Consequently, Don told me people did ritual there, and somebody conjured something up and never bothered to send it back that I want to see something six feet tall and pissed off. And I thought, well, I've never seen a spook, sure. And we go there, 
and uh, nothing like that shows up. But over between two bushes, I saw something about three feet tall, transparent, and white, and uh, sort of cylindrical shape. And Don says, do you see anything? And I think, well, here's my chance to test. I'll give him honest answers, but minimal information. So I say, yes. And he said, is it over between those two bushes? I said, yes. Is it three feet tall or so? Yes. Is it white? I said, well, yes, but I can barely see it. It's really transparent. He says, give me a moment. So he walks to the center of the opening of the circle in this space, and he's carrying a staff, puts it down, leans against it, it becomes very, very visible, easy to see, even though he's maybe 30, 40 feet from it. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's for real. And he came back. Is it any easier to see? So, oh, yeah. And at the end, uh, he went back to the middle put his staff down, leaned against it, faded away 100%. And when we left, we walked right by where it had been. I got down on my hands and knees. It was gravel, juniper, but two juniper bushes, and a uh, brick wall. That was it. And I said, um, do you ever teach this stuff? And he said, sometimes. And I said, will you teach me? And at that point, my uh, academic career took a very different turn. Because he said yes. I mean, a number of things happened, but that was the most spectacular. Wow. You got to admit, that was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that man is, is quite prominent in the Gardnerian and interfaith community. Um, His name is Don Fruit. Yeah, that that would um, that kind of experience would certainly hook uh, most of us into. I think. Yeah, I mean, my whole worldview collapsed into dust at that point. I wasn't a, a traditional materialist or anything. I, I'd have every few years I'd have some weird experience that would, sort of in retrospect, tip me off that more is going on than appears to be the case, but it never led to anything. It had, you know, things waited until after I finished the dissertation. And then everything began to open up. So did you have a particular spiritual path before that? Were you raised Christian? or No, I had, well, in high school I tried to be a Christian, and I grew up in Wichita, so that meant a pretty fundamentalist type of Christian, and it didn't work. Um, I guess I would say by the time I got my Ph.D., or if somebody had said, well, do you have a religion? I, I would be like so many people today. I'm spiritual but not religious. And I thought if anybody, if I ever did decide to convert, it would be to a religion that had a 
long history of honoring learning, so it would be either Buddhism or Judaism. Uh, if anybody had said, oh, no, you're going to become a pagan and a witch, I would have said, um, whatever you're smoking, you better stop. But the universe had other ideas. And so I'm a pagan and a witch. And, and so uh, then this overtime led to the second book. Yes, the pagans, pagans and, and Christians. Christians the, the, yeah, the personal spiritual experience. What was your, um, why did you write, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I had, you know, if you grew up a, a Christian, even if it's with any intensity, you always have a sort of nagging fear after you leave that maybe you're wrong and you're going to go to hell. And so I always had a certain uncertainty. I was pretty sure that it was not what it claimed to be. but uh, And then I, um, so I was, you know, would study issues of how pagans and Christians, broadly defined, differed. And then I had uh, a brother of mine asked me, who was a Christian at the time, asked me to meet with a minister when I visited uh, Kansas for Thanksgiving. And uh, I tried out a idea I had had from my studies, and I said, well, it's a little complicated, I guess, for a phone, but basically... Um, what I ended up suggesting to him was that um, the um, how do I want to put it Um, there's a very um, the longest passage of quotes of Jesus in the Bible that I know of is the one about the sheep and the goats and you know, the sheep are separated from the goats. The sheep are rewarded. The goats are told to leave. Um, and each asks Jesus or whoever, um, or Jesus, the assumes Jesus says, because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was a prisoner, you didn't visit me, and on and on and on. And each says, but we never did that or didn't do that to you. Uh, and then Jesus says, insofar as you did it to the least of these, you d- did it to me. And so I throw this at the minister and I say, now if that's true, Jesus is saying he is in everybody. And so any religion that treats people well is in keeping with his teachings and any religion that is not, does not, is not, and he had no answer. And I thought, bingo. This might be a way to uh, make the argument that there's no reason to believe that Christianity has any ultimate truth whatsoever. And that led to the book, uh, which was pretty successful. It was in print for many years. Um, But it was the last sort of spiritual book uh, I wrote until comparatively recently, and that came out about, what, 2001. And then I 
didn't do anything else spiritually in terms of writing a book until 2013. Mostly because I thought, if I don't have anything original to contribute, uh, there are lots of other very good people out there. Um, Focus on, on my academic and scholarly work, and that's what I did. As well as on uh, some shamanic and healing work that I was led into. So years go by, and then you wrote this interesting book um, that I—it's probably still in print. I'm not—I'm going to have to pick this up. Um, it's called Fault Lines: The Culture War and the Return of the Divine Feminine, and this was published uh, about 2013, looks like. Yes, by Quest. Yeah, and, and what was your? It... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and as soon as they published it, they stopped marketing their books. I think they turned oh. it over to Weezer, and Weezer, reasonably enough, spends most of its time marketing Weezer's books. Right. So um, it never got much, much coverage. Uh, I think it's one of the most important things I ever, I've ever written. Um, during the years from becoming a pagan to fault lines, when I would... Uh, right, I had no idea how to integrate traditional social science and pagan spirituality. It's like two different worlds. And it, it affected my research in the sense that if something was uh, antagonistic to a pagan worldview, uh, then I knew it was wrong, and so I didn't go into, I didn't explore those ideas in political science and what have you. But so I never wrote anything incompatible with the pagan worldview. But um, but I didn't know how to integrate them. Finally, uh, after what 20 years, roughly, um, I thought I could, and fault lines was was what came out of it. And it basically looks at the crisis the country is going through and nothing that's happened since has uh, indicated I was wrong. Uh, as having that every society has divisions within it that could become activated and tear it apart. And the uh, uh, U.S. and West in general have two or three that um, are doing that, and they've come together more or less at the the same time in this country. Um, The most fundamental, which led to the title of the book and to um, integrating uh, and uh, academic social science, was that we're undergoing the kind of division as a civilization that happened only once before in human history. And that was when hunter-gathering societies became agricultural societies. And that changed everything. Um, But 
the ways of thinking that people had entering into this new way of life were inherited from um, hunting-gathering ways. And it led to all sorts of, of problems. And different civilizations responded in different ways, um, governmentally, culturally, religiously, everywhere. The, um, now we're going from an agricultural society into uh, a technological urban one. And my argument in the book is that agricultural societies are biased towards masculine patriarchal values. And urban technological ones, and this will sound a little bit odd to some of you, are biased towards feminine ecological values. Um, for example, um, if you look at where is the core of the environmental movement, it's in the cities. It's not in the countryside. The countryside still wants to treat everything in nature as a raw material to be manipulated and used or gotten rid of if it's not useful. Um, if you look at the rise of feminism, it started in urban areas. And if you look at what's happening now, where is, this, where is the strength for the, uh, what I call the pathological masculine reaction? It's largely rural. And so we're undergoing a very, very fundamental shift. And one of those involves how you think about spirituality. That... Uh, um, the rise of feminine ideas of religion, of God, are modern. When people try to go back to, to matriarchal times thousands of years ago, of which we know very little actually about them, but if you look at where it began to rise as a powerful spiritual movement, uh, it was in the late 20th century and in many ways, it was the neo-pagans were the cutting edge of it. Um, more over and over and over again, women exploring the feminist or other scholars exploring the feminist side of their own religious traditions say Starhawk is who got it all got going initially. And some have even written that she was the, may well go down as the most important. Uh, theological uh, influence in the late 20th century. Uh, so even though very few pagans existed, sort of like yeast in a dough, they transformed most everything except the most reactionary uh, churches. And so that's the deepest uh, and most hopeful dimension of the fault lines tearing the country apart. And then I go into a couple of others, but they're more traditional social science um, types of things, historical types of things like the, the coming together of uh, Southern culture, which is the most backwards-looking culture. It looks back to agricultural values, to 
uh, hierarchical religions to authoritarian relationships in the family and between people, all of which uh, have very, very old roots. And in the process, Southern leaders had to explicitly repudiate um, the best part of that civilization, which was the rise of of the principles that gave birth to the Declaration of Independence and things of that sort. So I'm not saying one civilization is good and the other is bad. They're good and bad versions, uh, but that the agricultural civilization has pretty much shot its wad as a force of human progress and betterment. Uh, and so we have a very bumpy ride into something new, or the society gets destroyed from within, one of the two. So it's, it's, that's the basic argument of the book. And where do you see, and I know it's kind of hard to say because of where we are specifically in 2018, because now it seems we're going even farther backward than we were before, or I don't know, or is it just a last, a last gasp? I mean, what are the, what are some of the factors that have led to us being where we're at in this specific moment in time in 2018? Well, there's a number, every, um, every political system has its internal weaknesses as well as its internal strengths. Um, Our biggest weakness after the Civil War is that this country's basic logic implies government by consent of the governed. The Constitution is not a majority rule document. You have different groups all elected by people by the same people, but by different rules for different terms and different different uh, districts, like the House and the Senate, as well as the President. And to get anything done, they have to agree. Uh, so it's not a majority rule system. After the Civil War, we'd forcibly incorporated a part of the country that saw itself as alien to the rest of the country. And indeed it was and remains largely alien to the rest of the country. Um, That problem mostly was not too serious because up until the 50s and 60s of the last century, uh, the South was democratic which meant they were, because the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. And right. so they, they ended up being allied with Northern Democrats who tended to be liberal and urban. Um, but the South was left alone internally. It could do whatever, it could lynch as many of its own black citizens as it wanted, and nobody would do more than tisk tisk. Um, then you had... Uh, a period where where you got enough Northern Democrats and let's not forget at the time uh, what would now be called super liberal Republicans united to push civil rights legislation and other issues, but it was mostly civil rights legislation. 
that broke the South's allegiance to the Democratic Party. And the, Republic, the most right-wing parts of the Republican Party saw an opportunity to pull the South into the Republican Party. They largely succeeded. Suddenly, you have uh, no longer a regional, but a national party that is based on principles very, very, very different from the, those the country was founded on. And that has continued to strengthen as time goes on. The South pretty much dominates the Republican Party and uh, Southern religion, Southern Baptists um, dominate the uh, religious dimension of the Republican Party along with Pentecostals. And so you're looking at Southern culture, slaver culture in modern form, and it's tearing the country apart. They don't like science. They don't like equality of voting. They don't like equality of rights. They don't like taking care of nature. They don't like religious freedom. I'm speaking broadly, but I don't think there's much evidence that I'm wrong. And so you have exactly, yeah. An, you have an authoritarian culture, but it it is no longer creative, and so it can can maintain power by manipulating the rules and by refusing to let anything happen when they're not in power because the Constitution is not a majority rule document. And so that's, that's the, the problem we have today. And then you add to it uh, the problem of big business, which can play these two sides of the country off against each other for their own benefit. It's, it's not a simple dichotomy. You're paying the price of asking a political scientist what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know, but it is. I think so it, it is. In other words, in other words, it could either, yeah, either it could crash and burn because they have nothing positive to offer. Uh, Europe is already ahead of the United States now, Western Europe and Northern Europe in, in most of the areas that matter. Or um, if they ever lost power, it could happen a transformation for the better could happen very, very quickly because the country as a whole is not where they're at. They're only able to hold power because they manipulate the system. Right. Gerrymandering and things of that sort. Uh, the analogy I can think of is Quebec. For a long time, Quebec was the most reactionary, conservative uh, part of Canada. And, uh, and then when reformers finally did win, Boom. Suddenly, Montreal is one of the most liberal cities in the world. Because, you know, the, the reaction, in this case, conservative Catholics, uh, had held back change for a long time while the society moved well beyond them. And so once it had a chance to express itself, uh, Quebec changed fundamentally. Well, I think the same potential is in the United States but it also could end up being very nasty. Yeah. Um, I've certainly seen and heard, because I, I teach at a community college, I've certainly 
seen and heard a lot uh, a lot from students that they sound they certainly sound more willing now than they were two years ago to take a stand and vote. There were a lot of students I knew back in 2016 that simply did not vote in the national election because they, quote, unquote, didn't like either candidate, and they didn't think their vote mattered anyway. And recently, especially the past several months, um, last fall and into the spring, I've heard something different. So I am personally, I'm cautiously optimistic, but, I mean, we will have to see, and we really will have to see whether or not enough people um, do enough to really, you know, get out and vote. Vote for change, yes. I should say. The, uh, and hopefully so. The, uh, you know, if it was a simple, fair election, uh, these guys would be out. But one of the things I think they're going to try to do shortly before the election is a war. And, you know, hopefully they will have lost so much legitimacy in the eyes of so many people that people will realize it's an attempt to manipulate the voters by killing people and creating a crisis rather than actually defending the country. But we'll see. Yeah. And then we look at what Trump is doing with Iran, and we look at what Trump is doing with North Korea. So he's setting up two possible wars. Yeah. And you were certainly not the confident. only person to mention that. Yeah. So, so. in the last 20 or so minutes, um, let's change gear. And we're going to talk about what you're going to be doing here at uh, at PSG in oh okay. less than a month. Well, I'm certainly not going to give lessons in political theory. <laughs> <laughs> Although that could be, I'm sure it would actually have a pretty good turnout in that kind of conversation. That that. Well, that if they wanted them, I could do them. But <laughs> if they wanted them, I could do them. But that's not what I'm planning to do. Um. You know, I wanted I want to do a, some workshops based on um, energy healing. It's not quite the same as shamanic healing uh, because it doesn't require you to have working relationships with spirits, which to me is one is the distinction between a broadly shamanic approach and uh, just traditional energy healing. Um, so that amps it up a lot, but it's not something that can be taught in a workshop, in my view, uh, to do that kind of work requires years with uh, a teacher who knows what he's doing. The, certainly the right. uh, years I spent uh, in learning that kind of work I told people, I said it was as tough as getting a Ph.D. at Berkeley. It was very different. Didn't read any books. 
didn't write any papers, but it was every bit as demanding. But energy healing is something that uh, anybody, I think, can learn. And it can be valuable um, in their life, both for themselves and for, for helping others. So that's one of the things I'd like to, to do some workshops on. Right. So you've got, and, there's a beginning, and then there's also an intermediate workshop that you're doing right. for those. Right. And the, the intermediate would ideally require you to have done the beginning. Um it opens the door. It will open the door to learning to work with spirits. And as such, it is something that could be adapted to a coven uh, or a grove or some other you know, um, pagan community if people wanted to, to spend the time. And, and at that point, it's open-ended but uh, I'm not going to, uh, as I say, advanced requires working with people who know what they're doing because the analogy I use when I teach is that you can go for a hike in a state park and have a great time and then you want to have more. So you go to a national park in Colorado and then you have a really good time so you want to go to something a little more demanding, maybe uh, the Canadian Rockies. And then that goes well, and you want to go, so you go to the Yukon and go hiking up there where there's more that could go wrong. At each step, you need to know more in order to do it wisely. And this kind of healing work is the same thing. Like, for example, at a very beginning level, when I was first doing it, uh, a lot of people I worked on were masseuses who were natural healers. And they would start getting pains up their arms, in their hands, in their arms. They were taking uh, energy in from their, their clients. and But they didn't know that they were taking the energy in. They just knew that their clients got better and felt better. And... So one of the things I often did was clean the energy out of their arms and then teach them how to not take it in. Well, now it seems most people who do massage know that. Um, I certainly haven't heard from any people who do massage that I know uh, about those problems anymore. You know, people learn. But there's gradations of that kind of thing. Uh, from working on on the surface of people to working inside them to, uh, uh, you know, dealing with with aches and pains or working with really deeply rooted traumas and what have you that can be, um, that that can ruin a life. Um, So, you know, it's, in in other words, in a sense, it's like medicine. You can learn first aid, and it's very valuable to know that. But if you've studied first aid, you don't want to do surgery on somebody. It's best to have worked with somebody who's done it. So it's that kind of, of, of thing. 
and in in shamanic traditions, uh, you know, you have practices of hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases, of people who learned from from teachers, made some new discoveries of their own, perhaps, and then passed those down to the people who who work with them. I was fortunate to learn a lot from um, Afro-Brazilian uh, healers, and so my own approach is powerfully influenced by that. But uh, but there are many different approaches. It's not a, a I mean, one of the things that most fascinates me about a pagan world of, of dealing with spirits in all their many forms is just how much variety there is. You know, when I was first starting out, I tried to classify, say, the deities, the Greek, Roman, and African, and Orishas baby, to see if they were really the same. Well, they weren't. They overlapped. But once you learn much, you realize, no, Oshun is not Venus, who's not Aphrodite. Uh, They're all goddesses of beauty, but in different ways. And so our traditions are, I'm Gardnerian, uh, but I have no belief whatsoever that uh, Gardnerian Wicca is, is intrinsically superior to any other uh, neo-pagan tradition. Not at all. Um, You can be very wise in another neo-pagan tradition and you can be very foolish in a Gardnerian context. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And that kind of of segues into the other uh, workshop you're doing at PSG, at Pagan Sphere Gathering, the insights on controversies in modern paganism. The, uh, you know, one of the controversies is, is still is the well, my path is better than your path. Um, they we still run into sometimes, um, which I always thought that was kind of foolish. That one of the ideas of the pagan paths was that we acknowledge that well, my path is my my path is a better path for me than your path, but not for you specifically. It doesn't. You know, there, there's still people who tend to give that fundamentalist kind of thing in the pagan world. Oh, yeah. um, we call them hard guards in the Gardnerian tradition. <laughs> oh, okay. The hardcore, yeah. Um, it has to be done just this way. And every yeah. tradition has people like that. Um, right. And, yeah. Well, if you can't trace your spiritual lineage back at least you know, 17 generations or whatever, or to so and so, such so, 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 then you're not really, you're not really pagan, or you're not really a witch. I'm like, what? what? Yeah. Um, my test is, my test is, do the spirits come? Yep. When you ask them. Does your magic work when you do it? Mm-hmm. If so, you're doing something worth thinking about seriously. Does it also enlarge your heart? Then you're on target. Mm-hmm. Um if it doesn't, you're just doing, you know, theater. And theater can be fun, but it's not magic. It's not dealing with, with divinities and other spirits. And I don't care what the label is. Yeah. Um, so, so as I told 
uh, a Christian once, I said, I became much more pro- t- uh, open to the truths in Christianity after I became a pagan because I realized we, we don't claim to have the only truth. And so there must be something in the church or in one of the, actually I consider Christianity a polytheistic religion in which they worship a wide variety of deities that give it all the same name. And, you know, what does a Catholic God have in common with a Southern Baptist God have in common with a Quaker God? Not very much. Um, but that that's not a problem so long as you are happy with what you're doing and leave other people alone. And the same yes. is true for pagans or any other group. Right. And we get the you know, we get the proselytizing pagans once in a while and and um um and then you get the and then there's the folks that just like refuse to have anything to do with any kind of pagan group organization, whatever that has structure. Um, and I think that's that's sort of, you know, well, and these are the, the things we run into that we've run into, right? You know, that, that we've run into even in our yeah. area of, of of trying to connect and and do community building and that kind of stuff. Is <clears throat> you know, we used to get together with a group, uh, with a cups group, that meets in a Unitarian Universalist mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. and we were, you know, we would try to bring. You know, if you're interested, you're looking for something. Well, we're looking for somebody. We're looking for a group. You know, people who are looking for things. Like, well, there's this cups group that meets at, the, at this certain UU church, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, but it's in a church. I can't go there. Like, it's just a building. That's silly. Yeah. And they also don't know anything about the Unitarians. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Um, no, that's, that's just silliness. Um, I mean, I think there are pluses and minuses to mm-hmm. any kind of way of structuring uh, a religion. You can have your personal spirituality, but most of us are not hermits at heart. I'm certainly not. Um, But as soon as you have a group, you get all sorts of interesting dynamics, and then depending on what the the group wants to do, my, my own view is that most pagans today seem to be Happy. This is my impression. I could be wrong, and I'm mostly knowledgeable about the Bay Area, California, and a little bit now New Mexico um, in terms of personal encounters. Uh, most are happy doing, say, the Sab- Sabbaths, more rarely also the Esbets, um, and sort of devotional in their orientation. And I'm not talking about uh, the so-called polytheists who are only devotional. I'm saying most people have a sort of devotional emphasis. Um, And that works just fine with very little structure. Um, As soon as you start getting into magical work, structure helps a lot. But it also leads to some people beginning to think they should be in charge. And so I look at there is no single ideal approach. Um, 
it's, it's, it's what you want to do, how you're oriented, and then how much wisdom you and the people you're working with have, which is the wild card, of course. Um, but certainly if you're doing a, a serious ritual, it's very important for everybody to be on the same page. But on the other hand, uh, hey, I've been at public, some public Sabbaths where uh, people had not worked together. I mean, they had it. In this case, it was Narub, New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, a, a California group primarily. Um, and the goddess would come. Oh my God, she would come. Uh, so you know, there's. As soon as you're dealing with deities, it's not just what do the people do, but what's the agenda of the deities? You know, you're talking about a relationship that's not just between people. Um, but if it's just between people, um, whatever. It doesn't really interest me too much, but um, there's always problems with organizations and power and people wanting more of it who shouldn't have any of it. Yeah, it's kind of a human nature thing, I guess, that for a yep. lot of folks that there's, <laughs> there's, you know, somebody needs to be in charge, somebody needs to lead, and, you know, and there's, and it's, it is, it's sort of, <clears throat> it does kind of take a lot of insight and a lot of reflection and, and, and work to work as a group in a collaborative way without, you know, and, and keeping things as equal as possible without having that. Because once you start getting the, well, I'm in charge and I'm going to make the decisions and stuff, then you start to have conflict and, and stuff. It's, 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 it takes a lot of work. Yeah. No, the, yeah. Now, yeah. started out, Lord this, lady that. Um, I thought at the time it was bullshit uh, in terms of titles. Um, And I'm happy to say I hear almost none of that anymore. I mean, some of the more conservative ones like it, but it's sort of like there's been, you know, it's not, there's a first among equals for the high priestess and high priest, as I think there should be. But it's first among equals. It's not Lord this, Lady that. And um, I think that's a good thing. Um, You know, it's the balance of we're equals and we have different skills and different strong suits. Uh, I'm no great shakes on divination. Uh, I wouldn't... uh, presume to be in charge of a ritual for divination. It's not my strength. Healing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good on that. Um, and so, you know, we we have, someone wants to talk about herbs, I'll, I'll sit back and listen. I'm not an herbalist. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's that the interesting pattern of equals with different skills, including somebody need, being 
needed to hold the whole package together over time. Uh, I was part of a group in California for many years where uh, sort of by spontaneously I ended up being the HP. I didn't particularly want to be the HP, uh, but uh, what that meant was I would I and, and the woman who worked as priestess, high priestess, we'd set we'd set the beginning and we'd handle the end. But the group pretty much determined what we wanted to do in the middle, where the work is done. Right. And that worked that worked very well. Um, but nobody had to waste time saying, Well, how are how are we gonna open this time? You know, pretty much everybody's knew what was going to happen. It wasn't quite what others had done in other parts of their life, but they didn't care. Uh, we'd worked; to, we'd all been engaged for at least 15, 20 years. So all we needed was uh, a framework that everybody was comfortable with, you know. And then you could you could engage uh, the other dimensions of your mind and who you are uh, comfortably. And it it lasted at least until I moved to Taos. So it yeah, was a good group. Yeah. That's cool. And sometimes the high priest, high priestess, tends to be the one who uh, has the living room. Um, you know that everybody. In this case, in. that wasn't the case. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> but, it, but it but it can fall on people just like unexpectedly, like, well, you're yeah, that's. Um, <clears throat> And uh yeah. yeah, fascinating stuff. So other controversies, let's see, uh oh you mentioned in your in your workshop mm-hmm. right up here, cultural appropriation, which is I guess in the past what which past is couple a, years has really become a topic. Yes, and a, a deeply destructive one in my view that is rooted and my I I've done a series of pieces uh, cultural appropriation will be the next one, but I've done five part essays so far on, on in Witches and Pagans Online. Um, and my basic argument is that if you take a view of the world as living, then the whole cultural appropriation shtick um, falls apart and it helps to explain why it has led to such unpleasant um, events in the pagan community. I mean, 20 years ago, we were sensitive to um, whether it was appropriate to use, say, deities from different traditions. It was talked about. And sometimes people would try it and sometimes people wouldn't and what have you. Uh, In terms of the actual issues, there's nothing new. In terms of how it's talked about, it's very destructive. Um, Is is, uh, smudging, culturally appropriating something from Native Americans? Oh, my God. Um, What kind of smudging? Um, right. Incense has been used in 
traditions all over the world. If you become a, a native to this land, the native, in, I mean, the indigenous native natural herbs such as sage would be the ones that the, the local spirits and what have you would be comfortable with if you want to use that kind of, of argument. Um, it's absurd. But the deeper, the deeper problem is that uh, in the social sciences, I finally found, I think, the concept that is a bridge to the occult. And that's the concept of a meme, which you've probably heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an idea in its social context. It's not your private thought. It's something that is, exists in society. Well, if you look at what a thought form is, it's the same thing. The difference between a thought form and a meme is that a thought form exists in some space other than what we think of as consensus reality. A meme, the people who talk about memes aren't quite sure where it exists. But each each are the basically the same dynamics. The difference is that in a meme, a thought form is usually deliberately created as a magical act, usually. Yeah. But there are other kinds, uh, like egregores, that are much more spontaneous reactions, uh, the feel of a crowd, and um, things of that sort. Well, once you realize that a meme is to some degree an independent entity of any particular individual, as soon as it goes public, it has its own life. You don't own it. You don't control it. Right. Um, And as a consequence, the whole concept of cultural appropriation, which is based on an idea of ownership of an object or work of art, doesn't work. It's the wrong framework. Um, You're not stealing anything. Now, what? Oh, well, maybe you lied and said you had a teacher in another culture. Well, that's always been an issue. Uh, Or maybe you're using it without respect. That's always been an issue. True. There's nothing new in any of that. What's new is this whole notion of, of, of... ownership of something that is not yours. And there's no end to it. Um, I picked, I picked the, uh, the smudging of the sage as an example, but um, it leads to well, a non-religious example. Um, I read that um, Elvis stole uh, Hound Dog from a black woman singer who wasn't nearly as successful as he was, although she was moderately successful. And that is, you know, the, 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 the specifics, not the word steal, but the specifics are true. But then it turns out that um, the song was written by some new, quite New York Jews for her. <laughs> uh, and then you say, well, what about blues music? Well, there are powerful African elements in blues music, but the harmonica, which is a fairly important instrument in blues music, was developed in Vienna, in Austria. Oh. And 
if you try okay. to make if you try to make some sort of cultural ownership, you find out that memes are polymorphously perverse. They go everywhere that they find a uh, um, possible opening. My uh, think of the word grok, which a church of all worlds paw did a lot with. Well, and Robert Heinlein came up with the idea of grok in uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. The last thing he imagined is it would become an important concept in a neo-pagan tradition. Nobody could have anticipated that. Or that it became, would become an important concept in certain types of, of, uh, of the computer field. So these, once an idea is out, it's on its own. And yeah. you can never predict. Uh, and so the whole notion of ownership is silly, and it's certainly not. It's a very Christian and capitalist concept, actually. Even though those pe- the people who make the most of it claim to to be anti, to be progressives, um, it has much more in common with uh, the alt right notion of cultural purity than it does with with anything in a in a free and creative society. Um, as you can tell, I have a fairly strong stand on this, but... You don't have an opinion on it, do uh, no. <laughs> Pardon? I say you don't have an... Yeah, yeah, there's no opinion. You're, you're very impartial. There's no opinion on this, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I started out impartial. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think... I think the, the sort of the core pagan virtue is respect. Okay. Right. And then it takes different forms in different contexts. And so if you do not respect another culture, that is bad in my view. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you do not respect another tradition, that is bad in my view. Um, So it's not like I don't think there there are, I do think there are very legitimate issues, but how we think about those issues powerfully influences how well we deal with them. Um, It's like when people thought night air caused malaria. Well, it didn't cause malaria. You know, by protecting people from night air, some people were protected from mosquitoes, and so some people didn't get malaria. But nobody knew what caused it. It certainly wasn't night air. Um, well, this is, you know, cultural appropriation is like night air. It's a misunderstanding of what's going on that occasionally can, in fact, deal with uh, an actual issue. Um but there, there's a number of, basically what, I, what my study of that led to, and that's partly, I think, what I want to do in this, in this workshop, is that being pagan doesn't simply mean you do different rituals at different times of the year than if you were a Christian or if you were secular. It's a different way of looking at the world a way of looking at the world that is alive in which it's not just human beings out there doing whatever it is that human beings do. We're in relationship with a whole lot more. Um, Spirits and deities, for sure, but other kinds of of psychic, if you want, forces. And the meme is thought form is, I think, 
so important because it links it links um, social science with uh, a magical occult um, animist way of looking at reality while doing uh, giving full justice to the social science dimension but also doing full justice to the animist dimension so I'm I am very grateful for being involved uh, in, you know, being drawn into this debate, which I really didn't want to get involved with initially, because it, in trying to figure out what was wrong with the idea, um, I came to, I think, a vastly better grasp of why it was important for a pagan outlook to... Uh, prosper in this world today. Right. Anyway, I just ran out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, it's, it's so sad. Uh, Jeanette and I, we're not going to be able to make it to PSG this year, so we're going to miss out on all these great workshops and these conversations and discussions. This sounds like the kind of stuff that uh, we could spend hours you know, sitting around a you know, sitting under a tent somewhere, just just chatting about this stuff. This is, um, I mean, you you really bring a lot of insight and um, perspective to this, and um, obviously thought about this a lot and studied this uh, these topics. So, uh, for anybody who's going to be a PSG, I mean, I would strongly recommend these, you know, spending time in your workshops and this, the the energy healing um, and the insights on controversies of modern paganism, part of the Pagan Leadership Institute. So these are, and the Pagan Leadership Institute are, is a series of workshops and, and things that are geared towards people who are aspiring or in leadership roles within their pagan environment and organizations and groups. But although it's, they're not specifically um, only for those in leadership or aspiring to be leadership. So you can be a solitary, you can be a member of a group. It doesn't really matter. Anybody can attend these workshops. But this kind of the idea is these are sort of the advanced, some more advanced workshops and stuff, the, the Pagan Leadership Institute. The P, you'll see PLI next to the workshop names designated to these. And this, is the, and this will be one of those PLI workshops. And uh, this is going to be, um, yeah, I think we've got some books to buy. Did you, uh, Jeanette? <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, I yeah. well, it's funny to mention that because I was, as Gus has been talking, I went on Amazon to see if you can find them. And you can you can find, well, you can't find your dissertation, but you can find all the other books. So, yeah, they're definitely out there on Amazon. Um, don't know other yeah. websites, but I know yeah. that you can get them there, and they look, you know, reasonable in price. They, it's not going to cost you an arm or a leg. So definitely if um, people listening are interested in this kind of discourse and what Gus has been talking about, then these books really are uh, – would be a good read for sure, especially the last one that you wrote, the one that came out mm-hmm. in 2013. I'm uh, very interested in that one for sure. So um, well, and, I think we'll have a book, good you can time. Get straight- Oh, yeah, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was saying the Lines book, you can get it straight from questbooks.com. You can go to their website. It's, it's oh, okay. a link on, 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 your, on the website here, Gus's website. Uh, click on that. It's 1895 from uh, Quest, uh, directly from that. Okay. Yeah, if, yeah. if you can afford it, I would urge you to get it from Quest. 
um, I may eventually get a, a royalty from it, but uh, but the money goes to the publisher and the and eventually maybe to the writer, uh, whereas Amazon gets gives very little. You might get a better price, but you won't get um, okay. you won't do anything to support the writer Which, or the or the publisher. So. Okay. Okay, which you know, is really important for a lot of us too. Yeah. Option do it, but yeah, I try to avoid Amazon. Um, although if I can't get any other way, I will go there for sure. Right. Um, and you can also get at least Pagans and Christians is also yeah. available on all sorts of used book sites for you know a dollar, which everybody okay. can afford. They make their money from the shipping costs. <laughs> The book would be a dollar, and it'll cost you three dollars to ship it, and they'll they'll make fifty cents or a dollar off of that. Um, okay. But that's a good way to get it if you if if your budget is super tight. Right. Now, are you also going to have these books, any of these books, with you at PSG? I will have some of the fault lines. I hope okay. I need to have them sent to. Uh, circles so that because I'm flying out so I don't want to be right. have one more piece of luggage but um, I'll have a few copies um, okay. and Pagans and Christians is, is out of print right now uh, it had a good run but there's so many um, copies for a dollar on the use sites now I think Llewellyn decided there's just not much money to be made um selling new ones and I, I don't blame them. I think my last royalty check was for one dollar and sixty cents. <laughs> they must have sold Woo-hoo. one. Uh, but hey, you know, it, over the years they sold a bunch. But yeah. you know what what happens is that the books get into the used book market and the price goes way down and um so everybody can afford it sooner or later. Uh but at the same time that means that's why they the damn college textbooks, they reorg- reorganize the chapters every year or two. So you can't use last year's text for this year's course. Oh, I know. You're preaching to the choir yeah, there. You know, yep. Yeah, you know, how, you know how that works. Yep. <laughs> so um, in any event, uh, I'll bring some, some of the uh, uh, lines books. Yeah. And then I have a new book I'm working on uh, with the very un, uncontroversial title of God is Dead Long Live the Gods. <laughs> oh, that okay. That was a joke. <laughs> now, the publisher, of course, the publisher may want a different title. And, and Llewellyn's interested, but it's premature to say that they are going to do it. Um, right. But I'm real excited about it. And uh, <laughs> and it'll be using modern science. Uh, a big part of it will be using modern science to make the case for polytheism. Yeah. There's really, really, really good books out on polytheism from other perspectives, so then want to just add this dimension to it. Um, but that's a promissory note for the future. 
Right. But you're not going to make it. I'm not going to meet you. No, we're not. So I have to figure out some other ways. But we'll at least get some get some of the books and and try to connect that way. And you know, and it's always open to learning something more. Yeah, that's that's the thing is we get to have these talks with everybody who's going to be at PSG, and then we can't make it. So we always feel like you know a little jealous, a little well, uh, you can be my envious of those who are going to be there. <laughs> huh? You can be my Facebook friend. Right. And then if you're ever in Taos, we can connect. Or if I'm ever wherever you are. Oh, Northern Virginia. Yeah, if you ever decide to come to D.C. And I I was born in, in uh, thought in, in uh, oh gosh, senior 60s, senior moment here, Radford. And the family seat is in Loudoun. Yeah, and the family seats in Loudoun and Fauquier counties. Real close to DC, but uh, yeah. But I haven't been there for a while. Um, Who knows? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, we get to see Selena out here once in a while. She visits her family, and it's kind of interesting how everybody has people. We run into folks a lot who have uh, a lot of folks have connections. In this area of the of the the Mid Atlantic here, um, uh, so yeah, you never know. Cool. I think we need to be wrapping up here. It's already mm-hmm. what ten twenty. Yeah. Uh, yes. Wow, time's really gone. It's it's really been an interesting discussion here. Um, I've, I've learned a lot. Well, thank you for the opportunity to yeah. uh, mouth off. <laughs> uh, I'm looking I'm looking forward to to those workshops. And uh, if somebody disagrees with me, so long as it's polite, I love the discussions. So don't feel that um, if you have a different point of view and you're at a a workshop on uh, controversy in the pagan community, uh, the questions that arise contribute to the value of the workshop enormously. and sometimes I know in the past questions have led to me reconsidering and changing my views. So I won't be speaking as, as the bearer of capital T truth for everybody else to learn from. Oh. On the other hand, on the energy healing, yeah, unless you know what you're doing, it's important to pay attention. <laughs> so, um, so thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing anybody who's listening uh, tonight who is at PST. Introduce yourself, please. Yeah, that'll be quite a time, it looks like. Um, yeah, eight days with your, a thousand of your best friends that you've never met. Um, well, and, <laughs> and a bunch that you probably, that you, that you might have if you've been there before. Um but that's like usually like the first 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 time first time at PSG. If you don't know anybody there, it's like yeah, it's your a thousand of your best friends you've never met, but you will be best friends before you leave. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we found well over eight o'clock house time here. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, we would like to take this moment to thank 
Gus for coming on the show. This has been a great discussion, and we would like to thank uh, Witch School for allowing us to come on the sh- on every week to talk about a variety of different topics of interest to the pagan community, and we've been doing this since, well, Circle's been doing this since 2011. David and I have been doing yep. this since uh, sometime in 2012, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's been quite a few years. And we'd also like to thank Circle Sanctuary for allowing us and our co-host, Bibba Rose, to come on every week and talk to a wide variety of people and authors and performers. Thanks a lot. I think I'm going to look for a song here to play to, to close this out. We usually play, a, play some music at the end. Um, Thank you for having me, and I look forward to when we ever we meet. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, thank you, and thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us tonight. This has been a, a very interesting conversation here. So I think we're going to close out this evening with um, some music by one of the by a group who are going to be at Pagan Street Gathering this year, and we've we've talked to them a few weeks ago, and they're really uh, just awesome people. Um, they're from Appalachia, Appalachia, depending on where you're, who you're talking to, and, you know, you get beat up if you say it wrong. Um, there's a song by Twathadea. Um, this is a, something, a little thing called Whiskey in a Jar. So we're going to close out with Whiskey in a Jar by Twathadea, and they're going to be at PSG, and they put on an excellent, awesome show. So don't miss them. Um, and anything else? We got it. I think that's it. Okay. Cool. Right. Blessings to all. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you.
listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight. 